Scripture is clear, the law can't save us. So when the rich young ruler of Luke 18 asked Jesus how he could be saved, why did Jesus quote the commandments? Well, stay with us to find out the answer to this question and more. We want to welcome you to another question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who answered the questions of his many listeners for over 30 years. This is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Our first question comes to us from a listener in Leavenworth, Kansas. He writes, Are saved Christians required to be baptized in water and baptized by the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands? Well, may I say to you that, first of all, baptism by water is not essential for salvation under no condition. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that you are never asked to do anything about. You are told to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, and when you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you are told, by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body or identifies us or places us in the body of believers. Now, that's the important thing to get, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with your salvation, and that you can do nothing about it yourself. You trust Christ, and you're put in the body of believers, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, two things we want to say here. First, Do you think a saved Christian needs to be baptized in water? I believe that if you've been saved, and it's believer's baptism, it's not for the unsaved anyway. It's believer's baptism, and if you are saved, baptism is a testimony that you give. And I personally think it's a good testimony. And as an ex-Presbyterian, I can say that by immersion, gives the best testimony. Now, we've spoken of that the baptism by the Holy Spirit does not come by laying on of hands. You don't lay on anything. You trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and the Holy Spirit performs several ministries immediately in your life. You are born of the Spirit. You're indwelt by the Spirit. You're sealed by the Spirit. You're baptized by the Spirit. You don't do any of those things yourself. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you when you trust Christ. Now, this party says, I asked because of John 3, 5. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ says there, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. Water there has nothing to do with water baptism. Water there refers 
to the Word of God because the Holy Spirit has to take the Word of God in order for you to be born again. He has to apply the Word of God to you. Simon Peter put it like this, born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. And it's when the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to your heart. So John 3, 5 has nothing in the world to do with water baptism at all. Now, I want to turn to a passage in Galatians 5, verse 1. Paul says here, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, if you think circumcision or baptism or any other ritual or any other ceremony is essential to your salvation, then Christ profits you nothing. May I say to you, he's our Savior. And if you put your faith and confidence in these, you're not trusting Christ, and Paul says you're not saved. It's only when you trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope I made that very clear, because that's something you just can't make too clear. When reading your Bible, have you ever come across a word that you didn't fully understand? Well, a listener in Syracuse, New York, had a similar problem, and he asks, can you please explain the meaning of sanctification? Well, let me say this to you, that if you have been listening to our Through the Bible program, we were in the book of Leviticus, and one of the things that we were talking about was the sanctification of, of the priests for their holy office that they had. And we were given their glimpse of just what sanctification really is. Now, let me put it like this to you. Sanctification is in three different parts. There is what is known as positional sanctification. When you and I trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, At that time, the righteousness of Christ has been made over to us. The Lord Jesus has been made unto us righteousness and redemption and so many wonderful things. But righteousness is one of the things that's been made over to us so that you and I have a standing before God that is perfect because we are in Christ and that is our position It's positional sanctification. You know, God can't take anyone to heaven but perfect people. (laughs) And if he's got it on that basis, then I'll be honest with you, I won't make it. But in this matter of positional sanctification, when the Lord Jesus Christ took away my sins, paid the penalty for my sins, he not only subtracted sin, but he gave an addition of righteousness. He's been made unto us righteousness, and that is the teaching of the Scripture. So that is positional righteousness. Then there is an experimental or practical righteousness. That's when we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord down here. And then there is that which is ultimate righteousness, Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, 
But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. He is righteous. That's the ultimate goal for us. But none of us in this life attain to that. Paul could say and did in Philippians, he said, that he said, I'm not perfect. And I have not yet attained that which he had been called. He never became a perfect man down here on this earth. And you and I never will become perfect down here. But there is a practical righteousness that you and I can grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. And actually, we ought to be a better Christian today than we were yesterday. In other words, there should be a spiritual growth in the life of all of us. And that growth is the thing we're concerned with today. That is the thing that we lock horns with, we come to grips with, and that is to live a life that is worthy of God, and we cannot do that in our own strength. The thing that we need today is not the gifts of the Spirit. I'm a little weary of hearing about the gifts of the Spirit. What we really need today is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. How do you attain that then? How do you come by it? Well, we're told to walk in the Spirit. And to walk in the Spirit means to learn to walk in the Spirit. It's a learning process. And I think that there is definitely a time of growth in a Christian's life. That's the reason that he keeps us down here, is that we might grow. And actually, the business of the church is to produce fruit, spiritual fruit, and not religious nuts, but fruit. And that is the righteousness that you and I need today, and that is the way that you and I can grow and become sanctified. That's sanctification, that you and I grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of the things that's so important today is to recognize what is our business as a Christian when you get right down to the nuts and the bolts. What is our business as a Christian? Well, it's to do what Jesus wants us to do. And when you and I are doing that, then we are being sanctified, regardless of what that might be. And for each one of us, I'm sure it would be different. A Pennsylvania listener is concerned about a statement he thought Dr. McGee made. He says, you indicated that love was not in the Old Testament law. How do you reconcile that comment with Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, where Jesus said, you shall love your God and love your neighbor? Both of these quotes from Jesus come from the Old Testament law. Could you please explain? May I say to you that I made a very unusual statement, and you misunderstood the statement. I have one reputation, and that is that I'm a simple Bible teacher. That's what one seminary out here in California likes to think of me as being a very simple person. And I like that because I'm delighted that people understand what I'm saying, and and they don't need to misunderstand. But quite frequently, I find that people misunderstand. Well, I made a statement something like this. 
that God was a long time in telling anybody that he loved them. That actually you have to get to the book of Leviticus before God tells anybody that he loves them. There's a great deal of love of Abraham for Sarah and for Jacob for Rachel, but there's nothing in Genesis about God's love for the human family. But when God gave the law, God put in there this matter of love and the fact that he loved his people. But he was a long time getting to it. Now, that's the thing that I said. I didn't say that there wasn't any love mentioned in the law. I said God was a long time. You go through Genesis and Exodus and You have to get to Leviticus before God tells anybody that he loves them. And I think, by the way, that is unusual, very unusual. God never told Adam and Eve that he loved them. That is according to the record. Now, I'm sure that since he communicated with them so closely, I'm sure that he did. But I'm talking about according to the record that we have today. Here's an interesting question. This one's from a listener in Lexington, North Carolina. She says, why did Jesus list the commandments to the rich young ruler in Luke 18? And I'm sure most of you are familiar with that. If not, I probably ought to turn and read Luke 18, 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. You see, he's making the young man face up to it. He's called the Lord Jesus good. And the Lord Jesus says, there's no one good but God. Therefore, if you see goodness in me, it's God. Actually, the Lord Jesus was the only good man that's been on this earth. And this young ruler saw that. Now, the Lord Jesus turned the commandments on him. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. He was a fine young man, you see. And now the Lord Jesus tells him the next step that he could take, and that, the important thing, was not for him to get rid of his material wealth, but to follow the Lord Jesus. And where would following him lead? It would lead eventually to the cross, of course. Now, let me go on with this here. According to Matthew 9:13, he said, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is this why he dealt with these two men as he did? The Lord Jesus, when the Pharisees were there and the publicans, and you'll recall he gave the parable about two men went up to the temple to pray, and only the publican is the one that had to stand afar off. He was shut out. Now, this part, it says in Luke eighteen thirteen, we have the prayer of the publican. Could this be the same man spoken of in Luke 19, 1 and 10? Zacchaeus. I believe that. That's been my position now for many years. That the publican that stood afar off. In other words, what he's really saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He's saying, make a mercy seat for me, a publican, a sinner to come to. And I think the Lord Jesus went to his house that night to tell him he was on the way to Jerusalem to make a mercy seat for him. Now, according to Matthew 9, 13, he said, I'm not come to call the righteous. Is this why he dealt with these two men as he did? And that's probably the reason that he did. I think 
you're quite accurate in that. That's a very good distinction you've made. During one of the Through the Bible programs, this listener in Portland, Oregon, heard Dr. McGee say that Russia was the only modern nation mentioned in the Bible. He says, when I read my Bible, I come across the nations of Spain, Greece, Egypt, and Ethiopia, which are all presently in existence. Could you please explain what you mean by the term modern nation? Well, may I say to you that the very argument that you are giving me here, that Spain, Egypt, Ethiopia, modern nations, they're not. They come from ancient times. Egypt is one of the oldest, Ethiopia. But the name Russia, you see, did not appear until, I believe it was Peter the Great that gave the name of Russia to that group of tribes that were scattered throughout Russia. And it's more or less of a modern name, you see, in that sense. It's not an ancient name. It doesn't go back like these that you've mentioned, like Greece, for instance. Greece is not a modern nation. It's an old nation with a long history. And actually, Russia is the only nation in Europe and Asia that is a modern nation in the sense that it hasn't been around as long as some of the others. Struggling with his faith, this person in Portsmouth, Virginia says, I have heard many on radio and TV say that they are able to live a perfect life. In my own life, I find it impossible to reach such a standard. Is it possible to live a perfect life? Let me say several things to you. First of all, I have never been able to live a perfect life myself either, so you are in my company at least. And the second thing is I have never met a person that lived a perfect life. I've just never been able to meet them. I hear the same thing you do on radio and on TV today, but may I say to you that strictly unbiblical There is no one that has ever lived a perfect life down here except the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that is very important to note is that God really hasn't asked you to live the Christian life. He wants to live it through you, and he wants to live it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul made it very clear that he couldn't make it. He says, what that I would do, that is, that new nature, that old nature that I've got, just won't come around and do it. In the seventh chapter of Romans, Paul gives there his experience, and in his own strength and power, he found out that he could not live the Christian life. He says, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. The old nature can't live a perfect life. You and I have that old nature, and it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. There's nothing wrong with God's law, but there's something wrong with us. The flesh is weak. God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, 
but after the Spirit. And it's when you and I learn to walk in the Spirit and let the Spirit of God lead us and direct us and strengthen us, only then can you and I live the Christian life. That is the important thing for you to do, not to live a perfect life, but to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and to please the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. That's the thing that is important, young man, above everything else. Peter in his first epistle quotes Proverbs when he says, If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? A listener in Northville, Michigan says, Would you please explain this passage? May I say to you that the only way for people to be saved, even so-called good people, righteous people, is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if it's essential for the best man on this earth, and that could have been Paul the Apostle, or it could have been Nicodemus, if it is necessary for them to be born from above, necessary for them to trust Christ, then what about the sinner? It certainly is essential for him to trust Christ. And therefore, that's the purpose of this verse here. If it's necessary for even good people to trust Christ, certainly. How about the sinner, the real down-and-out sinner? Well, he has to trust Christ also, by the way. And so I think that we need to keep that in mind, by the way. That's a good scripture that you've given us. Our final question today comes to us from a listener in Garden Grove, California, and he writes, During your lesson on Genesis chapter 14, you stated that Amraphel has been identified as Humurabi of secular history. Can you please state your source for this information? I've checked Baker's Bible Atlas, Unger's Bible Dictionary, and Unger's book on Old Testament archaeology, which all indicate that there is no evidence to establish this claim. May I say to you that I had the privilege of sitting under Dr. Melvin Grove Kyle, who was an Egyptologist and an archaeologist. He was one of those that helped excavate the tomb of King Tut and other excavations. He was editor for years of National Geographic and also of the ISBE International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, of which there's none better. May I say that he is the source of my information in lectures in class. He made the statement that he was convinced, although the evidence seemed to be to the contrary, that these two were the same. And it's on the basis of his statement, and with all due respect to these other men whom I know and respect and recognize that they are scholars and that I'm not, nevertheless, I still accept my teacher's point of view because I personally feel like he was probably the most competent man that I have listened to in my day and generation. And for that reason, I gave that viewpoint, recognizing that these other men had said differently. But if you follow my study through, you will find out that many times McGee departs from the ordinary interpretation and the accepted one to give his interpretation 
And there are a group of my friends that call them McGeeisms. They're not worth very much, but don't pass them by. Give them a little consideration because I don't make them without some foundation. I can assure you that. Well, we hope that one of your questions was answered today. If not, we do have a number of helpful resource materials that you might find helpful in your understanding of God's Word. If you'd like to receive one of our resource catalogs that list many of our books and the booklets and CDs, we'd love to send you a copy. To receive yours, just call us anytime and leave your voicemail request along with your name, address, and the call letters of this station. If you enjoyed today's broadcast and you'd like to listen to it again, you can do that in one of three different ways. If you have access to the Internet, you can listen to this program as well as the five years of our Sunday sermons and our weekday Through the Bible programs. You can also download one of our mobile apps so that you can listen at your convenience wherever you go. And then finally, you can enjoy the broadcast by purchasing a CD copy. I'll give you information on contacting us in just a minute. Don't forget to join us this week on the Through the Bible radio program. It can be heard every Monday through Friday on this station. If you'd like to be added to our mailing list, that way you'll get the notes and outlines and our monthly newsletter on a regular basis. You can do so by calling using our internet order form or downloading them from our website. To reach our offices by phone, call 1-800-65-BIBLE, Monday through Thursday, from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. Write to Questions and Answers in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or visit us online at ttb.org. Now, because we serve a great and mighty God, we pray that He will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. This program's been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.